This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Rem Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Here we are again. So I am back in a hotel. This time yesterday, I was leaving Medicine Bow um, National Forest in Wyoming, and um, we, I am now in West Des Moines because we got the wedding this weekend, and um, it's been an adventure. Um, you know, the, uh, the van life thing is going to, it's, first of all, the machine is great. It's really impressive. Um, we haven't completely put it through its paces yet. We, when we went camping, one of the things that we had to, uh, it was sort of a good sort of beta test kind of thing because it just made us realize, okay, here's what we're missing. Here's what we don't know how to do. The weather was kind of great getting up into the mountains and then we got some, sleet and snow and sideways rain and um, all that. But we slept in the van just fine. We had a nice meal. We ended up having to cook it in the van in part because I couldn't, I got this really fancy portable grill from Nomad. It's really cool looking. It looks like a, a nuclear suitcase bomb. And I bought these schmancy coals and I just could not get them lit properly. And then the rain came in, so we didn't even bother to keep trying. And um, had to cook it on the induction snow stove inside the van, which was exciting. And so we had steaks and sweet potatoes and salad and in in the van, and it was a uh, it was it was great. Um, and we um, had this. I really wanted to make the dispatch meetup in Des Moines, even if it was just a surprise visit with Zoe and Pippa. I think people would have appreciated. But um, <clears throat> the whole trip got delayed because. Starlink didn't send all the equipment to the the conversion van place, so we didn't have internet for this thing. And for whatever reason, State Farm kind of screwed us. And so we didn't have the final approval on the insurance for hours after we picked up the van. We just had to wait around in a parking lot forever um, to hear from State Farm. So it was a lot of that kind of, you know, comedy of errors kind of thing. Man, did I like getting off the highway in Wyoming and actually seeing you know, some of the real state, you, you know, you get this impression of the country when you're driving cross country that 
the country looks like what you can see from the interstate. And I know that's a cliche, but it's true. And even though intellectually I know it's not true, um, that, you know, that, I mean, you just think about where you live in relation to um, whatever interstate you're closest to, and then extrapolate from that about how much you don't see about the real nature of where you live if you're just basically staying on and off the interstate. And, um, and I've driven in the interior of lots and lots and lots and lots of states. Um, but it's just, you get a mindset when you're driving cross country. And so, and since I sort of hauled ass to get out to Portland and we were kind of hauling ass between vacation spots to get back, it was finally, it was just great to sort of get off the main road, go up into the hills and in Wyoming and, and if you've never been to Medicine Bow or that area, um, you know, it's sort of outside of Laramie, it's, it's an hour from Laramie, something like that. It's just a beautiful, beautiful part of the country. Um, Zoe and Pippa like camping. They don't love the van yet. That's been a real source of stress. It's weird. They like going in car, or at least they can resign themselves to going in the car. But Zoe gets very nervous in a van or in an RV. Um, she was like this in the RV we rented a few years ago, um, she tends to clutter towards the front of the van and just um, be nervous and stay awake um, the entire time. And she's starting to learn how to relax, but it's a, it's a learning process. All right, enough with the travelogue stuff. I know there are people out there who just could not give a rat's ass. I know there are other people who want to hear more, so maybe I'll write about it in the G file or something. I wanted to do these, these updates from the road. Um, it turned out to be sort of technologically difficult because we haven't fully set up this, this uh, um, skiff thing, which is not a self-contained information classified thing. It is a reference to how when we launched, we called ourselves a pirate skiff. And it's where we're going to have this podcast super feed thing. We just haven't gotten all the bells and whistles out, you know, figured out yet. So, and the first one I did was really lame. I think, I think Adam said he was going to put it on YouTube, but I, I don't advise listening to it. But we're going to figure it out and we're going to do more stuff from the road. Um, as I become more and more of a road life kind of guy, where to start? So I have not, I, I do not have a granular grasp of what's been going on in Washington. I do get the sense that everything is going really, really well since I left. Um, Kevin McCarthy is just firing on all cylinders. Joe Biden has never seemed younger. Um, the House Freedom Caucus has never been more reasonable. But uh, so, yeah, so again, I am open to correction on some of the Kevin McCarthy stuff. But from what I saw this morning, um, it does seem like the wheels are starting to come off the bus and that um, Matt Gates is being Matt Gates. you know? I mean, if ever there was an Aesopian character in GOP politics, um, well, there's Donald Trump, but Gates is it. Gates has been telling the world exactly who he is. And um, he has figured out a political model that being a pain in the ass and a jerk um, redounds to his benefit often. Doesn't mean he's always wrong about every single thing. Um, but he's, uh, you know, he's in it for himself. And I'm sure he has wonderful rationalizations about why he's doing something for the greater good, but, um, he's not, um, he's a skeezy guy, but I do think it's amazing and hilarious that he's going to be running. It sounds like he's going to be running for governor in Florida. I mean, the reason I say he's a sapien is, is like, you know, every frog on Capitol Hill knew he was a scorpion and they wrote him, you know, as needed. 
I'm not saying that McCarthy had much of a choice and I don't have much sympathy for McCarthy, but you know, when you only have a four vote margin for, uh, the, the speaker vote, uh, you basically are beholden to whoever wants to have leverage over you. And Matt Gates's whole theory of politics is to, you know, be a performative jackass and, um, scuttle the works for his, you know, to justify TV time for him. And he doesn't much care if, you know, going his way is going to lead to a government shutdown because he'll blame somebody else for it. But you know how I said, you know, I've said many times around here, when Trump was first appearing in American politics, you know, in, not American politics, but, you know, it first seemed like he was going to actually have a shot at winning the nomination and all that, you know. I used to say all the time, this is going to end in tears no matter what. So maybe you should just do what's right. It just, it gets really difficult sometimes watching all of this jackassery, um, particularly from afar, and not wanting to sort of shout, I told you so's from the highest mountaintop, just in the sense that if you actually believe that, you know, it has to be grandiose, you know, what was it, Herodotus and character is destiny or anything like that. But if you actually think that character matters a lot and that character will out, character is going to overpower a lot of other rationalizations and, and considerations. You just look at the kinds of people that the GOP and the right have made allowances for rather than just simply holding a line early and being willing to take the grief at the time. This was just so inevitable to have the, the GOP caucus run by a bunch of hotheads, you know, again, they're not all wrong about everything, but their contempt for procedure, I should say, their contempt for institutional norms outranks their, any of their actual policy goals. And we saw this, you know, with the House Freedom Caucus where, you know, when I was, when they were first, you know, asserting themselves on the scene, I took them seriously as wanting to be sort of super aggressive budget cutters. And they're not, they, I just don't believe at all that they're super aggressive budget cutters. They're super aggressive budget cutters when the other party is in power. And we saw that on full display when Donald Trump was in office. And, you know, what's the saying? Mick Mulvaney, you know, told us on the Dispatch podcast that, you know, at the end of the day, the House Freedom Caucus is more a bunch of anti-establishment people than they are anything else. And, you know, and this was his sort of defense of them and his explanation for why these people who were, you know, when Donald Trump came into office, he, the reason Mulvaney told him this, sorry, it's, it's very early and it was a very long day yesterday. Um, the reason why this conversation came up, and I've talked about this before, was Trump, when he first took office, he was saying to Mulvaney, oh, I'm really, I should be, worried about the House Freedom Caucus guys. Those guys are really conservatives and are really conservative. And Mulvaney said, no, 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 Mr. President, don't you worry about it. At the end of the day, you know, they're going to be your biggest supporters because they're more, when you got right down to it, they're more anti-establishment than they are anything else. You know, Mulvaney, you know, kudos for his honesty, but this, and Mulvaney was one of the founders of the House Freedom Caucus, you know, before he went over to work in the Trump White House. But this was basically, to me, a concession that, you know, they didn't really mean, um, it's not that they didn't mean everything that they were saying, but at the testing point, 
at the point of of actually paying a price for their stated convictions. Uh, they didn't care about, you know, balanced budgets and fiscal rectitude and all that kind of stuff very much. They cared more about being attention getters and gadflies and anti-establishment people. And so when Trump was for budget-busting spending, they were all fine for the most part, as far as I can tell, with budget-busting spending, including Mulvaney when he was in the White House. Now, I'm sure he counseled smart things and all that, but nobody threw themselves in front of the Trump train and said, you know, no, this far and no further. Um, and that's, you know, that's the thing about this. I, I, this is something that I think a lot of people don't appreciate fully. And it's, it's, it's not a defense of the House Freedom Caucus guys. It's not a defense of hypocrisy and all this. It's more, you know, it's, it's more explanation than excuse. But um, I think this, I think the way a lot of people reconcile their cognitive dissonance, think of it this way. You have a, let's say you have a list of ideological priorities or, or political principles or philosophical commitments or whatever they are. They're a list, but they're, they're ranked in importance to you. And I don't just mean importance in terms of like their significance on the merits of, you know, Aristotelian, you know, ethics or whatever. There are some things you're more willing to fight for than you are for other things. And this was a point, I think, I think it's Cicero who first says this, that courage is the most important of all the virtues because it's the one you need when your other principles or your other virtues are being tested. You know, you can say you're for free speech, um, but it takes courage if you're, you know, in an auditorium full of, of a bunch of people heckling a speaker to be the one who get up, gets up and tells everybody to quiet down and let the man talk, Right. It's, it's courage, not free speech that you're, that is the operative thing there. And I think there are a lot of people who can come up with different words for courage, but it's like, you can just call it cost benefit analysis. Like courage comes out when certain things meet a very high level cost benefit analysis. And so courage is the thing that in politics determines what you really, really care for. Um, and courage can only come when you're facing resistance, when it comes at a price, right? You don't need to do any kind of moral or psychological or emotional cost benefit analysis in a win-win situation. It's only when you're going to be unpopular or you're going to pay a price with voters or you're going to get bad press or you're going to lose donors or one of those kinds of things that, um, actually demonstrates real courage. You know, there are a lot of people in Washington and there are a lot of people in punditry who think that they're incredibly courageous for doing and saying stuff that only wins them applause from the people that they care about. An enormous number of people who, who are taught, you know, who we talk about or people talk about as being incredibly brave, incredibly, you know, uh, independent, and yet they never disappoint their own fans. They never do go out of the way to stand up for something that might tarnish their their rep as a brave crusader. And, you know, they, I can give you lots of, I think a lot of people can think of an, examples of this on the right, but, you know, the example I've always used for years is on the left, and it's those people who 
when they win the Academy Award, you know, for best actor or best director or whatever, get up on stage and take huge craps on Republicans or President Bush or uh, big business or right wingers or bigots and all these kinds of things. And I'm not saying everything that they say is necessarily wrong or, or necessarily, you know, you know, indefensible. You know, there's stuff that was, you know, I don't know, George Clooney or Marlon Brando or whoever, you know, there's stuff that some of them say that is defensible on logical or rational terms, um, even if I disagree with it, right? There, there are colorable arguments made by the left that are perfectly valid. What bothered me about those displays, you know, is when you have these, you know, people up there getting so self-righteous about the evils of racism or sexism or whatever and homophobia, you know, or the war, whatever. It doesn't matter what the topic is, right? They would get up there and they say these things to an audience that completely agreed with them, uh, to rapturous applause from a press that completely agreed with them. And yet the coverage was always about how brave this was, how courageous this was in the heart of the business elite of Hollywood to say these things and blah, 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 blah. And very few of these actors or, or directors or whatever are, are saying anything about how greedy the studio heads are about points on the back end or, you know, the structuring of, of, of royalties deals or any of that kind of stuff. They don't, they don't criticize, they don't speak truth to power in the realm of their own lives where power has control or influence over them. Look at all the people who spent decades talking about, you know, the evils of sexism, made movies about sexual harassment and all these kinds of things, and didn't say a word about, you know, what's his face, Harvey Weinstein. You know, that's the point is like it's it takes courage to actually mess up, mess with your own livelihood, mess with your own popularity. It does not take a lot of courage to attack people from the other tribe if you only care about the opinion of your own tribe. And there's an enormous amount of that in American politics where we misunderstand what it what it means to be courageous about anything. And that, that point about, so anyway, th but so this is the, this is my thing about a lot of the House Freedom Caucus guys, about a lot of Republicans on the right is, is it's not so much that I disagree with. If we sat down and we had a conversation about list the 10 things that you think about politics, I'd probably agree with nine and a half about them. But what are the things they're going to fight for? You know, what are the things they're going to prioritize? To govern is to choose. Most of these guys pick battles that win, that, that put points on the put points on the board for their own narrow constituencies um, without much or any concern about the long-term viability of the system, of um, uh, the long-term brand, of, you know, value uh, for the GOP or any of that other kind of stuff. A lot of the, the rest is just talk. Okay, so that's a lot of talk about just talk. So let me move on. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. 
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So I wrote about this thing on, uh, on the interwebs about how a lot of men obsess about or think about Rome all the time and it freaks out their wives or their girlfriends. Um, when, you know, they ask, how often do you think about Rome? And their husband or the boyfriend says, I don't know, like probably once a day, something like that, five times a week. I'm one of those guys. Rome pops, ancient Rome in one way or another pops into my head pretty much daily. Um, particularly since I was working on Suicide of the West and, you know, was doing a lot of thinking about these grand things and all the rest. Um, but also, I got to say, you know, it's partly because I really liked TV shows like Rome and to a lesser extent Spartacus. And I um, love the movie Gladiator. And, and there's something about those movies that's just sort of is very sticky in our heads. And so anyway, I wrote, you know, for the Wednesday G file, which I wrote entirely while driving from, uh, what was it, Hood River, Oregon, which is really beautiful. If you've never been done the Columbia Basin stuff, uh, you should check it out in the town of, I think it's Hood River is it pretty adorable? Um, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of, you know, Patagonia hippie. Um, but it's, it's really cute. And anyway, so I wrote a G file from the passenger seat, um, on my way to where, wherever we went. Was it Wyoming then? Anyway, why do I, so I wrote about it, why I think about Rome all the time. I'm not going to repeat the whole G file, but I've been thinking about it and I've gotten a lot of responses from people First of all, I want to respond to one point about that I was sort of glorifying the glory of Rome. If I was, I don't, if I was unduly, I don't, I didn't mean to. I am perfectly happy to concede that by almost every modern metric, Rome was evil. Yeah, no, I'll stay with evil. But, and I don't like talking about evil being a subjective thing, but if you, know, if you go back and you read a lot of the rules, you know, that the, that the Hebrews lived by um, and their tolerance for things uh, that we would not tolerate today, um, you know, values and norms and ethics and, and mora- notions of morality change over time and not necessarily... For the worse, I mean, this is one of these things that I think a lot of conservatives get messed up in their heads is they think, yeah, look, there's a lot of decadence. There's, as Adam Smith said, there's a lot of ruin in a nation. There are a lot of things going on in American life, um, American culture, particularly revolving around, you know, porn and transgender stuff and that kind of thing that I think is degrading and, and dismaying and decadent. I, I They'll dispute that in the slightest. At the same time, we seem to think that somehow, like sands in the hourglass, society was founded with a great deal of morality loaded into it, and it's just been falling out of the glass. Tick, 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 tick. Look at look at it as as the last vestiges of our um, 
moral souls empties out. And that's just wrong. You know, I mean, if you, you know, in ancient Rome, you know, for people, it's so weird. You know, I, I talk about this a lot about how there are these people who are obsessed with sort of reincarnation stuff. And, you know, they always imagine themselves being, you know, in a past life, being a princess or a king or, a, you know, a, a crusading general, when in reality, just as a matter of math, most people, if they could be reincarnated in the past as a human, right, not as like a tree slug, um, would be some sort of serf or other kind of peasant um, toiling in fields for 12 hours a day in, with backbreaking labor um, or a grunt in an army. Um, people always imagine themselves in the past as being a member of the elite. This is a big thing among the sort of right-wing incel, gro graper, um, very online crowd that they all imagine themselves, not all, right? This is my impression, that a lot imagine themselves. They imagine themselves as being some sort of conquering general and, you know, now they're working at a Starbucks or whatever. And it's like, trust me, Starbucks work is better work than what you probably would have experienced if you went back, you know, 2,000 years um, and were born at random into society somewhere. But moreover, like, you know, in ancient Rome, and for a very long time afterwards, confessions weren't considered truthful unless they came from torture. The kinds of, you know, punishments that you could be crucified for, the kind of crimes you could be crucified for were ridiculous. The, the, the general tolerance for violence um, and cruelty, uh, never mind, you know, rape, was just beyond the pale for, by any standard of today. That's moral improvement. The, you know, the idea that somehow we're, we're less moral than we were in the past, well, you know, like, if you actually believe that slavery was immoral, then we're, <laughs> that was a massive moral improvement. If you're a woman who thinks that you should have the ability to be, you know, to have, you know, the captain of your own soul and have moral agency, we've made enormous moral improvements. We don't, you know, cut hands off for this and cut other bits and dangly parts um, for that. But so the thing is, I, what I don't like about talking about the Rome, what I don't like about talking about the Roman Empire being evil is that the only way to call it evil, uh, particularly before Jesus comes along, right? Um, the only way to call it evil is by the yardstick of the present. And I have, I've written a lot about how I dislike this approach to thinking about the past, right? This is what the left often does when it comes to um, American history is they say, rightly, you know, slavery is, is evil. And, and they compare the founding to today, the founding era to today. Um, they compare all of the past to today. It is unfair and, dis, and I forget fairness. It is, um, it is mentally distorting. It is, is logically uh, befuddling to judge everything in the past by the standards of the present. The only 
meaningful if you're if you're of a Whiggish bent and think things do improve over time um, or can improve over time, um, then the only relevant benchmark is when you're looking at the past is to say, well, how does that compare to what came before it? And, you know, as I've talked about a million times, <laughs> the American founding, the American revolution, the American founding was a giant, not to sound like a Maoist, was a giant leap forward in human progress and, 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 and political morality. Just a massive leap forward. The, you know, and, and, and even on the issue of slavery, the, the language and logic of both the Declaration and the Constitution created an internal tension that meant that eventually, you know, this is sort of a Lincolnian position, eventually meant that slavery would have to go. It is a shame, and I don't mean this as a dismissive thing, it is a little legitimate shame that the founders didn't get rid of slavery at the time. But again, if you look at the, the moment of the late 1700s, slavery had been a norm in every, virtually every major civilization that you can think of on every continent for 10,000 years, 12,000 years since the agricultural revolution. Again, slavery is, slavery happened in the um, prehistoric past for sure. But usually what it was, was uh, one tribe would kill all the men of another tribe and then take their women and children and, you know, as, as prizes and sometimes as wives, sometimes as slaves or whatever, but um, slavery in the really tribal past was pretty rare just because they were, um, uh, strangers were considered dangerous and enemies. And if you, you certainly weren't going to take a lot of men, um, as slaves when you're, a, um, you know, when you're a migratory tribe kind of thing, because they can, first of all, they're very easy for them to run away. Second of all, it's very easy for them try and kill you in your sleep and you don't have a lot of labor that requires, um, uh, you know, indentured servants as it were. Um, it's the agricultural revolution and the economies of scale that come from agriculture that basically create slavery as a widespread institution. And from the agricultural revolution until, you know, the 16th and 17th slavery century, it was everywhere. It was, you know, in, you, we can get into a semantic thing about serfs, but serfs were essentially slaves. Um, and, uh, but on almost every other front, you look at the, the American founding as a improvement over what came before it. And it's undeniable. I mean, they, from day one, they got rid of titles of nobility, right? They created property rights and inalienable, they, 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 they enshrined in a constitution inalienable rights. It's a massive step forward from what came before. And so I think you can think about Rome in those terms a little bit too. Again, this is not part of my obsession with Rome, but like, you know, you can't talk about how, oh, look how genocidal, and it was, in, at least in Gaul, seemed to be pretty genocidal. Um, uh, you can't look at all the, the conquering and murder of other peoples and say, oh, look how terrible Rome was. Um, because that's what all those Gallic tribes and Germanic tribes, that's what they all did too. It's just that the Romans were better at it. 
And, um, you know, you can't, you can't say, oh, well, you know, look at the, um, you know, look at the imperialism and all that. Well, everybody wanted to be, not everybody, but well, pretty much everybody wanted to be imperialistic if they could get away with it. It's just that the Romans were better at it than everybody else. And I think one of the things that, that so this is part of, for those of you who didn't or aren't dispatch members and didn't read the Wednesday GFL, part of my argument about why I think about Rome, why I think a lot of guys think about Rome um, a lot, is that there is something about it that lets you see um, the tensions, right? You can see, it's like, I, I use some terrible mixed metaphors about how all of our civilizational updates that have gotten to us here are like coats of paint on a fresco. And there's so many coats of paint now that you can't even really see a lot of the fine details of human nature and human um, interaction and, um, and, and, and human drama in the same way you can when you look at Rome because since it's such an early civilization, such an early attempt to impose civilizational norms of some kind um, on human nature, uh, you, you can see the, the, the ways in which humans were still, they were trying to refine and improve upon base passions. But the base passions were still so close to the surface of the civilization, you could see, you know, you could see the motivations, you could see the strings on the puppets. I don't, I, again, I, I got to find a better metaphor for this um, in ways that you can't see today. It's not that human, human nature has gone away in today's civilization, but um, we've learned some things <laughs> about, and we, we've ruled out some modes of behavior or we've channeled some of our passions into non-destructive, non-violent um, outlets, you know, I mean, like part of my point was that people, you know, men obsess about football in part because it keeps, it, it pings, it satisfies our sweet tooth for warlike, uh, gladiatorial-like stuff. And, um, and I think Rome in an intellectual way does that for a lot of people too. Um, it's, it, there's something sticky about it in our heads because it allows us to think about how we would behave in a society that was much more transparent about how it glorified status and glorified glory um, in ways that are much closer to our tribal, you know, authentic base selves. And at the same time, it's compelling and interesting by how much effort they, they put into coming up with intellectual, legal, philosophical constructs to um, contextualize base, base passions and sometimes channel them productively. Um, you know, the whole idea of not being allowed for centuries to bring your troops into Rome was a tacit understanding that that would just be too tempting to try and rape and pillage and take over if you had the means inside the city. So you weren't allowed to bring them in. It's sort of like, you know, <laughs> in a way it's like, you know, what Johnny Cash, don't bring your guns to town, right? It's, it's an early kind of before gun control. It's a kind of gun control argument, right? And the whole idea of having two consuls was, you know, as part of the original development of mixed regimes where you need checks and balances and you didn't want to give all the power to one person and having strict term limits was another thing. So there are lots of these things that emerge in Rome that I think is sort of fascinating as 
checks on human passion and human will to power. Um, but, and I think those things make it more, more morally refined than a lot of the aboriginal European societies. Um, you know, the idea, you know, Caesar writes in his journals about how when he was in Gaul, how, you know, grossed out, or wasn't it, maybe it wasn't Caesar, but it was Cicero visiting or something like that. Um, I've been listening to uh, Mary Beard's SPQR lately. And, and, um, and before that, I had the Caesar biography by Adrian Goldworthy in my head. And so a lot of this stuff conflates. But, um, you know, the, a lot of these Germanic Gallic tribes would, you know, have the heads of their enemies as basically decorations around their houses. Uh, lots of torture, lots of rape and Viking and <laughs> Germanic and Gaulish tribes. That was all the norm. And what you can look at Rome as evil and backward because of how it compares to today, or you can think of it as forward and advanced by how it compared to what came before it. Even its rules about slavery were more moral, pointing towards a more moral position than the rules of slavery that came before it. And um, it doesn't mean that they were right, but it makes them, it makes it all interesting. So anyway, that's I, I, what I've been thinking about. Um, um, oh, I'm sorry, that's not what I've been thinking about. That, that's my sort of response to people who say I was sort of glorifying or making Rome seem like a great place. I, do, I would not want to live in Rome, even as Caesar. Um, first of all, I just, I don't want to get malaria and I don't want, and I, and I like, I like flushing toilets. As many as advances as they had in sewage, ours are still better. But we owe something to Rome for them. Um, I just think it's not necessarily clarifying to say to harp on the fact that Rome did terrible and evil things because everybody in the past did, did terrible and evil things. Um, it's looking at humans trying to figure out how to stop doing terrible and evil things. You know, like one of the things I think is sort of fascinating about the Romans is with only a handful of exceptions. Um, they didn't do human sacrifice. And when they took over, when they, when they conquered people, um, they didn't, you know, they didn't try to um, impose Roman values on every conquered people. It was basically like the mob. They said, you know, here's what you owe us every year, um, both in terms of like tribute but also in terms of like conscriptable men. And, um, and other than that, you're free to do what you want to do, except um, you can't do human sacrifice. So even at that very modest level, Rome was imposing a certain moral standard that made humanity better um, at the margins, <laughs> but better. Um, and I, I think that that's, that's one of the fascinating things about it all to me. Anyway. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. 
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. website for details. Speaking of decay, um, I was going to say this earlier when we were talking about decay, when I was talking about how I think there are bad things happening in our culture. I think this Senate dress code thing I don't know what the latest is on it. I just saw that they're basically, like, as of earlier this week, they were basically caving to Eric Fetterman, John Fetterman, um, who feels like it is an absolutely draconian and unfair imposition upon him uh, to wear a suit as a United States senator. And um, I think you guys have heard, I know I ranted about this on the Dispatch podcast, you know, like last year. I'm a huge fan of dress codes. I, not personally, I don't, I like to get dressed up less and less in life. And part of that has to do with the fact that, you know, so out of shape, but um, like it, it drives me crazy that New York restaurants, there's basically not a New York restaurant or a Washington DC restaurant where jacket and tie is required anymore. Whenever I ask people from California, if there's any restaurant in the state that requires a jacket and tie, it's a basic, basically the answer is no with, the exception of some country clubs. I think requiring a certain amount of dressing up, you know, is uh, a good thing. It is a way to communicate respect. Like, like if you're going to ask your wife, ask your girlfriend to marry you, it'd be nice to know that there's a restaurant where you aren't going to see some, you know, doofus tech millionaire with his hat backwards in shorts at the next table over. Um, you know, not to be too gendered about this, but I think there are lots of women who like to have opportunities every now and then for special occasions to dress up. Um, and it is a way for men to show respect, to follow suit. And I think it's also, you know, it's like, I also think that this, you know, this gets into some of this mimetic stuff, which I don't want to get into here, but like this idea, you know, I think, I think the Silicon Valley guys have a lot deserve a lot of blame for this. Um, this idea that the Steve Jobs t-shirt thing or the Zuckerberg hoodie thing, they made it, it was branding to seem like they were sort of, you know, Mavericks playing against the rules, refusing to wear the gray flannel suit of conformity and all that kind of stuff. When in reality, it was just another form of, of uh, signaling, right? I mean, you can find this. I was listening to, uh, was it Mark Andreessen on Econ Talk a few months ago? And they were talking about some of this, about how like now the real sign that uh, you have status, um, sartorial sign that you have status is whether or not your shoes were handmade. Um, and like handmade pair of dress shoes, which people will wear with like jeans and a t-shirt, um, could be like $5,000, $10,000. I don't know. Like the idea of me spending that kind of money on shoes is inconceivable. But there are always, you know, this idea that somehow wearing a suit um, was a sign of conformity um, while wearing a hoodie was a sign of 
rebellion, maybe at the beginning, but very quickly, the hoodie becomes the new conformity. And the nice thing about the suit is that it's, it, it's, it's less, it's less likely that you are going to, it, it, it's more democratic. Like, you know how to dress properly if everybody, if the notion of what proper dress is, is accessible to everybody. When you make, you know, the latest in obscure fashion trends for the super rich, the standard, you are actually, it's a way for elites to pull up the ladder of access culturally and, 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 and sartorially, whatever, you know, from, from the plebes. And, you know, this was the point of why, like, Catholic schools have dress codes, is that if everybody has to wear the same uniform, then it's harder to tell the poor kids apart from the rich kids or the less poor kids. Um, it's a very democratic thing, small d democratic thing. But when you say, oh, I, I just can't be constrained by these sorts of oppressive norms, I'm going to have to let my freak flag fly. Um, you're basically empowering those people who have the resources to come up with the, you know, to, to treat clothes like a Veblen good. And, um, um, and so I think the whole, the whole idea of a dress code is actually not a way to protect the privileges of the elite and the rich. It is to make the rules for how you behave and have access to the elite more transparent. Um, and so I really, I hate this, this thing by Fetterman because it is, I mean, think about some of the themes of this podcast over the years. Um, you know, the Yuval Levin thesis about institutions that um, institutions are supposed to mold you. They're supposed to ask something from you that to make the institution better and stronger. And in the process, they make you better. You know, the Boy Scouts, you go in an unruly kid, you come out a, a well-mannered kid who helps little old ladies across the street. The Marines, you go in a filthy hippie, you come out a Marine. Um, the Peace Corps, you go in lacking direction, but then through service and, and good works with other people, you come out knowing yourself better and being a better person. I mean, you can come up with institutions. It's not a left-right thing at all. It's about giving yourself over to making sacrifices for an institution for the betterment of the institu institution and that in the process that makes you better. And the institutions don't exist for the purpose of making you better, but it's one of the byproducts of them. Um, and look, there are institutions that make you worse uh, and you shouldn't join them. But um, that's not the case here. This is such a simple rule. Wear jacket and tie, right? I mean, like, uh, I'm sure you can get away with khakis on the Senate floor. But the idea that, like, until this moment, until Fetterman came to the Senate, there was no one brave enough um, to challenge these norms. Uh, it's just, it's so absurd and ridiculous. And so another theme of this podcast is sort of, you know, end of my book is, is romanticism run amok. This idea that, um, your authentic self is the most important person there is and that it is, it is an evil and oppressive thing to ask someone to deny 
their truest self in any regard and that you only have to listen to your inner voice. You have to go with your own instincts. You have to be true to yourself. And as long as you're true to yourself, you can do no wrong. We're all Byronic heroes um, in today's culture. That's Fetterman's excuse for needing to wear gym shorts in the, on the floor of the Senate. You can just go, go down a list of things that would be designed to piss me off. And, uh, and this Fetterman thing just checks every box. He's just not, no Senator is so important that they can't put on a suit. The fact that the Democrats are, and, and obviously look, I think this has more to do with the fact that Fetterman should not be in the Senate because he is, he had a really de devastating stroke that the extent and scope of which we were basically lied to about. Um, he's not fit for the job just as a sort of medical diagnosis. It seems to me, I saw recently the, just came out and said he just can't understand spoken speech um, very well anymore. And I'm, I'm sorry, look, I, I, I am for providing access wherever possible. This is one of the, another one of the ways in which we are more moral than the Roman Empire. <laughs> and we are more moral than the 1950s is the way in which we've worked extremely hard to be more inclusive of people with various handicaps, impairments, disabilities, whatever the correct term is. And that is a sign of our civilizational improvement and morality. And I think that's an important point to make. But no one has a right to be a U.S. senator. Um, no one was born so important that they had to be a U.S. senator, even if your name is Kennedy. And the idea that, you know, I mean, Fetterman's the kind of guy, he's the kind of Democrat who says, I'm working every day for the improvement of the, of, of, uh, the lives of, of my constituents, of the people of Pennsylvania or whatever. Well, couldn't part of the definition of working hard for you um, be putting on the uniform? Uh, I mean, you think about the Colin Kaepernick stuff, um, you know, where he, following the Levin thesis, you know, used the NFL as a platform to perform upon rather than as an institution to shape him. And all of the fuss was about him kneeling at the national anthem and him having some uh, controversial socks or something like that. Imagine what your action would be if he just refused to wear his team's uniform, right? Well, the uniform of the Senate is a jacket and tie. And if you're going to go out there and talk about how you're doing the hard work for your constituents, Part of the hard work is suiting up every day, literally suiting up every day. Um, and I just, I think the whole thing is just gross and stupid. Back to the Rome stuff. Sorry, can't keep it out of my head. Um, it's funny, I was listening to, and this is related, don't worry. So my wife and I, uh, you know, my wife's working on this book about her dad and she met with some relatives. That's why she was out on the West Coast before me. And turns out that like my wife's great, uncle and our great uncles, maybe it's more than one, but she had some relatives, relatives who had fought in the Czechoslovak, Czechoslovak legions in the Soviet, in, in Russia. And she was like really kind of jazzed about that. And I was like, Oh, well, did you um, ever listen to the, the Russian revolution podcast? You know, that Mike Duncan podcast, which I talk about every now and then they did a couple, he did a couple episodes about the Czechoslovak legions that were really interesting. And she was like, no. And so I was like, all right, let me find them. And so we started listening, picking up there and she had never gotten that far in the revolutions podcast. So now we're, we're, we're 
I'm re-listening to the last 25 episodes and she's listening to them for the first time. Oh, just in case you don't know what the Czechoslovak legions were. So when Russia was on the side of the allies um, prior to the Bolshevik revolution, one of the most um, disciplined and successful and cohesive units in the czarist army um, were the, the Czechoslovak regiments. That was in part because these were Czechs and Slovaks from, you know, the Western fringe of the czarist empire who um, were passionate Czech and Slovak or Czechoslovakian um, nationalists. And so the war for them on the, on the Austro-Hungarian empire, um, a war of national liberation for Czechoslovakia. So when Lenin and Trotsky um, with the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk pull the um, pull Russia out of the war because now Russia is run by the Bolsheviks, right? So one of the most successful, short-term successful, long-term screw-ups in I don't know, that's not espionage. What do you what do you call it? Um, you know the the Germans funded. Lenin's return to Russia and funded the Bolsheviks to a certain extent um, to get them to overthrow the czar. I guess you call it regime change, right? It was like the most cost-effective and most brilliant short-term regime change strategy ever, worst long-term thing ever um, in terms of the blowback. But anyway, so the Bolsheviks pulled the Russians out of the war and the Czech the Czechoslovakians are like, I'm just going to call them Czechoslovakians for now. I know it's complicated now because they're two countries, but uh, the Czechoslovakians are like, you know, screw that. Um, we were fighting um, the Habsburgs to get a, a independent nation of Czechoslovakia. We still want to fight the Habsburgs. So they start this migration eastward um, over the Trans-Siberian Railway, whatever, trying to get all the way out to, is it Sevastopol? To get, to cop a boat, because they can't now fight their way across um, westward to go, to, to fight the Habsburgs. So they want to go east to get on a boat to go west, and then they'll fight on the western front with the Allies. And in the process, so, but that, so here there's this really good military thing that is, uh, you know, regiment cohort that gets, that swells to like 40,000 members at some point, um, in the middle of Russia, basically controlling a railway line, the most, one of the most important railway lines in the country in the middle of the Russian civil war. And they end up fighting the Bolsheviks to get out. And, um, it's this crazy story. So I just wanted to explain what that was, but that was a detour. I apologize. So we've been listening to this, the, the Russian Revolution podcast, which really is great, and just an incredible amount of work um, went into it. You can just tell. And so I'm re, I've been re-listening to the, the portions on the new economic policy under Lenin, which has always been a minor obsession of mine. And um, for those of you who don't know, right, so war communism uh, during the Civil War run by Trotsky uh, was basically an attempt to create a command and control economy where you almost literally get rid of uh, currency. You definitely get rid of uh, markets and it's just um, rationally planned 
extract grains from the peasants or from the agricultural sector, um, extract finished goods, send them to the agricultural center, and it's all done. Uh, dudes with green eye shades and calculators in some room somewhere. You know, it's the it's the full blown antithesis of everything Friedrich Hayek believed in. War communism got more and more unpopular to the point where it risked a full blown peasant revolution. There were lots of peasant uprisings because basically what happened was was when you would seize all the you were, the the government was only supposed to seize surplus grain, but there became less and less and less surplus grain when the peasants realized that any grain they grew over any, any grain that they grew over base necessity um, was going to be declared surplus and taken away from them. So all the incentives to grow more than was absolutely necessary kind of vanished, but the demand for quote unquote surplus grain kept increasing to the point where um, these, you know, government units would end up taking even, um, the seed stock, which they needed for the next year. And this is one of the reasons why you get this massive famine kills numbers who know, really knows, but you know, estimates are between eight and 10 million people in like 21, 22 or 2021. And then Lenin through absolute necessity, um, with the support of Bukharin, uh, says, all right, we got to go a different way. And they come up with the new economic policy. And one of the it was a hodgepodge of things, but the basic gist of it is, is that they got the incentives pointed in the right way. So all of a sudden, uh, peasants could, they would basically just tax a certain amount from the peasants for how much they grew. But then anything above that, the peasants could keep and use any way they want, sell on the market any way they want. And, um, and boom, all of a sudden, uh, agricultural production starts to skyrocket. This to me has always been like one of these great demonstration projects about how markets work better than command and control, that incentives are really important. Anyway, I've just been thinking about this in terms of like, you know, in my book, I talk about how um, in, in, um, in Jerry Moeller's book um, on economic histories, uh, the mind in the market is really great on this point. Um, the market was on market mechanism, market forces, um, including lending of money, um, were always viewed with suspicion for most of, let's just say human history, but you know, it's, it's really, I'm talking about here, Western history. And um, there are a bunch of reasons for it. One is, is that independent sources of wealth were threatening to the powers that be. Aristocracies originally arise as, um, aristocracies of, of warlords, of, of the sword, right? I mean, so people who, um, or whose ancestors conquered a bunch of people, grabbed some land, set up shop, and declared themselves, in effect, a local king and, or chieftain or whatever. Market forces went, the richer you get, the richer, the more you get rich people, the more of a threat they are to the power of the established aristocracy or the established church or both, right? And, um, it's fine for existing aristocrats to get richer, but for new men, which is what they called them in Rome or upstart, you know, the phrase upstart is basically this, is someone who, who went above their social station um, because of their merit, which was looked down upon in from large swaths of human history. And, um, and so anyway, that's one of the reasons why uh, market forces were looked at badly. Another one was this whole idea that... Um, uh, it was immoral to lend money at interest. 
um, because you weren't putting any uh, sweat equity in. You weren't working. It was the idea that money should breed more money without toil was seen as somehow unvirtuous or after um, the rise of Christianity, unchristian in some way. And that argument was always, it always seems to me to be a post hoc rationalization. What people really don't like are what Thomas Sowell called um, uh, minority middlemen. And, or we just, doesn't even have to be minority. He was talking about, you know, the Chinese and really all over the world, the Chinese diaspora, um, Indians in parts of South America, Jews pretty much everywhere. Um, these uh, minority groups that um, figure out how to um, solve market mismatches, right? That how to provide goods and services where goods and services aren't being provided because of networks that they have around the world or whatever. They also know how to trade things from one part of the world where they're cheap and bring them to another part of the world where they're expensive. And anyway, these middleman minorities in large parts of the world are, are, are often hated. Um, and tradesmen were often, tra traveling salesmen were often hated in a lot, in some small part because they were, a lot of them were Jews. But again, I think that's the post hoc rationalization for it. It's that there is something psychologically that bothers people bothers human beings about people who you can say, I mean, the communists would say exploit, right? But who uh, make a profit over other people's needs and extract rents, as it were, from the transaction costs of making things happen, right? And so you had under the NEP, the New Economic Policies by Lenin, you had what was called NEP men. And these were people who made money by trading goods and services between different, over different parts of the country including weapons and whatnot, at a considerable profit. And so like under the NEP, Russia got richer a lot quicker, but the, the net men, these middlemen, got richer more ostentatiously and faster. And even before the new NEP, during the early days of the Russian Revolution, uh, the same sort of phenomenon went around about these men called bagmen because they got rid of um, all sorts of normal market mechanisms. And so these guys who actually literally would go off into the country get grain or fruit or produce or meat or whatever and physically bring it back to the cities. They're called bagmen and they would get, um, they make big profits. And this just really drove communists crazy. It was this idea that somebody was getting richer than somebody else, quote unquote, exploiting the work of others. And what drives me crazy about this is this is just like a, almost a constant in human history. And you see it around today. This is one of the reasons why it's fun to think about ancient Rome is that it, it, it illuminates some of these things. This idea of having, this idea of people who can see market demand somewhere and satisfy it, that somehow they're doing something bad, that they're doing something exploitative and evil I'm not saying that they're, they can never be exploitative and evil, but the function in and of itself isn't exploitative and, and evil. It is actually satisfying important human needs and making the overall society healthier and better. And I think this is the sort of, the, the, a lot of the debates about income inequality in America get at this, um, which is, you know, you, there are these psychological studies where people you know, sort of reveal that they would rather make less money 
if it meant they were making more than all the people around them. Um, you know, it's this sort of status thing and that they would like making more money at the, at the cost of having the people around you make even more than you, um, is unattractive to a lot of people. People, it's not so much that people don't want to be rich, but the thing that they really care more about is being richer than the people around them. Right. Because we confuse having money for status. And I think that a lot, and again, this is one of the things I think is interesting about Rome is that the human desire for status, call it glory, call it earn, earn success, call it whatever you like. It's, it's not an evil desire. There's a lot that is good and noble that comes out of this desire. There's also a lot of um, stuff that is, you know, bad and dishonorable that comes out of it. It all depends on what your civilization, what your society confers high status on. But this desire for status is often um, the more important human drive than things that we call greed, right? The things that we call hunger for money or whatever, I mean, greed covers it, right? The desire for status is the thing that drives a lot more of our current culture war dynamics. I, I don't have time to get into all my arguments about that, but like it's, it's, it has more to do with desire for relative status than it has to do with a lot of the superficial arguments that people are having this innate human rage that comes from feeling like the other tribe is laughing at you or that you're valued less um, in your own tribes and somebody who, who doesn't deserve to be valued is in your tribe. This explains a lot of these stupid friggin' fights that we have these days because it's, this is one of the things that social media and nationalized, you know, sort of cable media does is it makes us all feel like we live in one giant small town. And so we get, pissed off about what people at the other end of town are saying about us and, and, and we cussy it up with all sorts of BS concepts of oppression and, and, and the like. And I think that this, this inability to process the role of status in society gets you into all sorts of trouble anyway. And so it, it also leads to really bad economic policies because, you know, if the goal is to make a society, a, a if the goal is to make a country richer. It shouldn't bother you that much if some people get richer faster as a result, right? Um, like this is one of the reasons why, and forget all the arguments pro and con about supply side economics and all that kind of stuff. If you ever listened closely back in the 80s and 90s to some of that stuff, a lot of the complaints had less to do with the fact that, you know, it bothered them more that some people were getting rich first, right? That uh, deregulation and um, junk bonds and all these kinds of things were having the effect of making a handful of people really, really rich. It almost didn't seem to matter to them that the economy overall was improving or even just in the abstract. If the economy, if, if, if we can make the economy grow at 10% a year, but, but a handful of people, billionaires, whatever, would their wealth would grow at 20% a year. There are a lot of people who think that, oh, that's an outrageous trade-off. And to me, it's just sort of like, okay, that's fine. Like if we end up having, you know, ad sales, I mean, we're not going to do ads the way you think about it, but let's say we do, like, let me put it this way. My dad's company, he always argued that the richest people in the company should be the salesmen that you want to have an incentive structure 
induces the salesman to make as much profit for the company. And he had argued, I remember he came home really angry about it because part of his job was sales and he had a cap on his commissions every year and he would hit it in the first quarter of the year. And he was like, look, I'm still going to do my job because I'm kind of a workaholic, but um, this is just so stupid to cap the commissions for salespeople because you want them incentivized to just keep chugging along, you know, making profits for the company. And, you know, the problem that a lot of the people he was arguing with had with this was that there was something grubby about what it said about their status. If the guys, you know, sleeping in Hilton's on the road, um, were making more money than the executive executives were. And my dad was totally fine with it. And that's sort of like my attitude about this is like, if it's, if it makes the country richer, I don't really care about the inequality it creates. Now I could be wrong about that because it's becoming more and more clear that it's, well, I think I'm right about the economics, that a lot of our problems in this country have less to do with income inequality than they have with status inequality. I don't know that you can fix that or that you should even try to fix that through economics. Um, that's something that has to do with fixing the breakdown in institutions, right, that, that confer status where people actually live. One of the reasons, one of the main reasons why the Soviets got rid of the new economic policy was just, they just found it gross. They found it gross that some people were getting rich, actually satisfying human needs by selling goods and services where they were desired. And, you know, that's why Stalin ultimately, after Lenin died, went back to sort of this command and control stuff and the collectivization, which killed, you know, millions and millions of people um, and brought more famine. People have such a, so many people have such a hard time with the concept of getting the incentives right. There's a whole branch of the bureaucratic mind. There are bureaucrats who actually get setting incentives right. Don't get me wrong. But um, there, there's, there's this something about the overly rational mind that thinks that everybody all the way down the org chart should do what is good for the organization heedless of their own interests. I get that as a, um, as an aspirational thing, right? I get it as for a football team. I get it, you know, for all sorts of small institutions, the little platoons of life kind of thing, but you cannot organize a whole society in perpetuity at scale on this idea that everybody, and it doesn't matter what your ideological rationale for it is. It doesn't matter if you're a, a nationalist or a socialist or a communist or a fascist. It's the, it's, it's the same problem throughout, or Spartan, right? You cannot create a vast, thriving modern economy and modern society where you, every single day, ask people to do things that are contrary to their most basic interests. And that's basically what totalitarianism is. That's often what authoritarianism is, is, is this idea of forcing every round peg out there into the square holes as dictated from the state. And so the thing I, I just think sort of amazing is how bad some people are at realizing the role that incentives play. I was reading someplace recently that when the British were exiling all those convicts to Australia at the beginning of that process, um, that they were paying the captains for every convict they took to Australia 
And the mortality rate from the passage, I can't remember what the number was. Let's say it was like 50%. It was just a really big number. People dying on the way. And the Brits realized that this was unsustainable, was morally outrageous, um, because being exiled to Australia wasn't supposed to be a death sentence. And so they said, okay, we're going to pay the captains not for every convict that boards the ship, but for every convict that walks off the ship. And with that change in incentives, something like the, the survival rate was more like 99%. That's what I'm sort of getting at. You don't have to be a fully-fledged capitalist society, and I think you should be, to understand the role incentives play. Um, there are all sorts of forms of socialism that can still give people bonuses or profit sharing or whatever. I mean, like employee-owned companies are kind of socialist enterprises, um, but they also get the incentives right. The guys who are, the auto workers who are striking, one of the things I have more sympathy for private sector unions for is that they, at least their incentives are pointed in the same direction um, in the sense that they want the company to survive and to thrive. I'm not saying that the auto unions haven't gotten um, a little, I'm not saying that that's always worked perfectly because there was a time when the auto companies, when, when Detroit had such a monopoly that the um, auto workers just couldn't conceive of the companies going out of business or anything like that. And they asked for a lot of generous stuff that didn't, I don't think, was in the long-term interest of the companies. Um, and I think history sort of borne that out. But in a more competitive environment, you know, I think that the incentives are kind of pointed in the right direction. Regardless, my point is, is like, incentives matter. And you, you look back on the, the worst regimes of the 20th century or the worst regimes of the last 300 years, and the thing that they get wrong most often is, is they don't take account of human nature, right? They don't take account of the crooked timber of humanity. Um, and humans need to respond to incentives. Um, they're not all economic incentives. A lot of them have to do with status. But regardless, you have to, you can't treat human beings as undifferentiated inputs. You have to treat human beings as human beings. And when you do that, you should try to uplift them and make them better as you bend them to the, needs of the institution and yada, yada, yada. Anyway, I just think it's sort of, it was sort of amazing how the Soviets sort of just missed this point and how it played into, and this mindset of disliking the idea that people through their own merit and hard work or through their own perceptiveness of seeing how they can arbitrage goods and services in a way that will leave everyone better off, right? I mean, like the middleman who takes grain from the peasants and sells it to the cities um, and takes that money and buys, you know, uh, canned goods and takes them to the, the peasants or whatever. Um, everyone's better off from that exchange. Um, but there's something about the profit-taking of the middleman that just drives some people absolutely crazy. And that distaste for that function is one of the reasons why it took so freaking long for market economics to break out of the cage that was put on it um, by the powers that be for thousands of years. It was just this idea that it was sort of gross to have people lending money and making a profit from it, to have people traveling from one place 
to provide better goods and services than the local guilds could, undermining the status quo. Um, and I think that's a theme of, of human history that comes up again and again and again. And I think it's something that, you know, you have to be ever vigilant for. I, I'm truly rambling now. When next you hear from me, I will be home, um, I think. And uh, thank you again to everybody for your patience with all this. Thank you to Chris Starwalt um, for hosting a great conversation with Amity Schlaes. I need to have Amity on when I'm hosting because I have some, uh, I love her, but I have some arguments I want to have with her. And, um, and thanks to Kevin and Sarah for doing their uh, very Texas heavy uh, podcast. Um, um, I, I cajoled Sarah out of maternity leave to do it. And then she cajoled Kevin into doing it. Um, and Adam, Adam, uh, thank you for tolerating me. And thank you very much for cleaning up all my, um, my brain farts on this one. So uh, with that, I'll talk to you next time. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.